Well, good morning and welcome to the chapel. It's so uh, good to be back here in the building. For those of you that are here today, it's so good to worship with you. And for those of you that are at home worshiping, we are also excited about being with you today. I've been meditating on a passage of scripture. I just want to read that before we open in prayer. It's from Philippians chapter 4. It says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Don't we need that gentleness and reasonableness today? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So replace your worry with prayer. And then it says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise in Christ is, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen from me, put these things into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Those are words that we desperately need to hear today, and I pray that today as we, as we hear and we worship and we rejoice with Christ, to rejoice with each other, and we replace that worry with prayer, and as we think truthful thoughts and we walk out of here practicing the things that we know we need to do, help us to bring honor and glory to His Son's holy name. Would you pray with me? So, Father... The passage begins with two women, Yodi and Syntyche, who are struggling in their relationships. And Paul brings the gospel to them and he says, I want you to be of the same mind and work together. And he tells us to rejoice, Father. We desperately need that this morning as we begin this worship service. Help us to rejoice. And we're not just called to rejoice, but we're called to rejoice in you, Father, in your Son, in your Spirit. Father, I pray that you apprehend the anxieties of our own heart. Help us to replace those anxieties with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving and praise, Lord. And help us to hear truth through the words that will be sung, through the message that will be given. And then, Father, help us to practice the things that we're going to bring honor and glory to your Son's holy and matchless name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Blessings, everyone. Please stand with us. Sing mighty eternal. Mighty eternal, victorious one. On earth there's no equal. Your kingdom has come. The power of darkness defeated and done oh jesus our savior your cross overcome sing a mighty fortress a mighty fortress is our god a bulwark never failing our helper he amid the flood 
of mortal ills prevailing. Did we, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Mighty eternal Eternal, victorious one On earth there's no equal Your kingdom has come The power of darkness Defeated undone Oh Jesus, the Savior Your cross over threaten to undo us. We will not fear for God at will. His truth to triumph through us. In mighty, eternal, victorious one on earth there's no equal. Your King Savior, your cross overcomes. That word, that word above all no thanks to them abided. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sided. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever, and His kingdom is
sing praise the Father.
in your house after so long. Lord, we know that we can worship you from anywhere, but there is something so precious and so powerful about being together. Thank you, God, for the reminder through corporate worship that we were not made to be alone. We were made in your image. The Trinity created us. Let us make mankind in our image. And as your image bearers, we know that we were not made to be alone. God, we thank you. We thank you and we praise you um, for the power of being together, for your presence being with us, comforting bringing solace, bringing peace, bringing joy, bolstering our faith. God, we praise you. Your creation praises you this morning. We thank you for houses of worship all across this nation and across the world that are lifting up your name today, that are crying out to you to comfort our world, to comfort our hearts. Lord, may we look to you May we look to you as our Father who is capable of carrying us upon his shoulders. And it is no burden for you. It is no burden at all. So may we cast all of our cares upon you this morning. Your word says that you care for us. You care for us. And we praise you. We praise you and we thank you. Your children are in awe of you. Lord, thank you for this time of worship. Bless the preaching of your word. May it go forth with power and might. And may it be seeds that we can take with us in our pockets and scatter this week. Speaking words of life to those around us who desperately need words of life and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome each of you to our service this morning. Just uh, grateful that you can be here. For those of you that are joining us online, we also want to welcome you. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of uh, Genesis. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 20. The title of our discussion this morning is Compromise, Consequences, and Grace. I was thinking through some illustrations of compromise and I... I I really struggled to try to find the illustration, but kind of capture the theme of this text, what's going on, and would also relate it to our personal daily lives. I was reminded of the story of a friend of mine, a guy that used to be an elder here at our church. He worked for a rather large uh, pharmaceutical company. He uh, was very successful in relationship to his work. Essentially, what they did was they bought companies for $100 million, would develop them, and sell them in the 130 to $150 million range. So they would spot a prospective small company, buy it, infuse it with their intelligence and their uh, various capacities, and then raise its value and sell it. And that was just part, it was a business development division of this company. Well, one day he was asked to do a presentation to the board of directors and the CEO of this rather large company. And when he reviewed the paperwork, for that presentation, he realized that some of the intellectual property contained in that presentation had been exposed to someone who was a president of that company at the time, and he realized that the new business proposal was under the name of the grandson of that president. 
Now, he was faced with an incredibly difficult circumstance. I mean, at one level, it seems obvious, right? But at another level, if I tell the truth, what's going to happen? What's my future at this company look like if I add a president? Well, he refused to make the presentation. And a few weeks later, was walked out of his office, out of the building, and was without a job. But he had his heart, and he had his integrity. And that man has my highest respect. I work with him in various ministry capacities outside of our church family. Uh, that story about facing an opportunity for compromise and personal gain of pretty unprecedented levels, saying no because he knew that it wasn't right, it would cost something, some peace, some part of his soul to make that presentation, acting like it is what it appears to be when it really wasn't. Now here's the truth in life. We all face situations where compromise becomes unbelievably tempting. It seems to be the best way out of or through a circumstance. The central issue of this text before us is an issue of compromise. Abraham is going into a certain uh, region, moving his flocks. He knows the custom of the kings there, that they will identify and steal attractive, uh, qualified women to make them look better. They'll add them to their, har their harem, and it will improve their statue. Abraham knows that Sarah in the past has been a target of such activity, and he compromised there. 25 years later, Abraham faces a similar circumstance. And this, this demon of compromise continues to haunt the life of the man of faith. Now, I want to I give you a working definition of compromise. So if I'm going to say that the central issue of this text seems to be the devastating impact of compromise on the people of God, I think also there's, there's an underlying theme that's present here, and that is the failure of the man of the house to provide leadership for his wife in the context of community and covenant. Okay, I think that's kind of a backstory, but I think the, the, probably the fundamental point of this text is, is to be aware of compromise in your life as a child of God. So let me give you two working definitions of compromise. One is a noun. Okay, when we talk about compromise, it, it, it would be an agreement or settlement of differences by making mutual concessions. Okay, so we understand compromise as a noun. It largely tends to have a positive bearing, right? So the school board and the teachers reached a compromise in regard to their contract, meaning they finally came together and it's going to work out. That would not be an immoral compromise. Okay, uh, if I'm with someone that likes coffee, which would not be my wife, uh, I say, well, you want to get a cup of coffee? They say, yes. I say, well, I would prefer to get Dunkin' Donuts. And they say, well, I would prefer to get Starbucks. Well, I'll say, you know what? I'll compromise. I like coffee more than the debate, okay? So it, it's, compromise is, is sometimes it's an appropriate thing. But typically when you think of compromise as a verb, the dynamics tend to change. It tends to shed the kind of positive aspect. So to compromise in the sense of an act on my part would be when I give up 
or sacrifice clear moral boundaries to preserve myself or to gain an advantage or illicit pleasure, in that context, compromise is always wrong. Okay? So as a noun, compromise can be something that is appropriate, has a decent outcome. It would be acceptable and moral. But typically when compromise is being used as a verb, it tends to take on that negative connotation and the idea that I'm sacrificing some moral principle. Compromising is typically driven by what I can keep or what I can get. And it tends to have a respectable vibe in our culture. And that's the part to me in this text that is interesting. What Abraham does accomplishes the aim that he desires. But it has consequences that go with it that are, that are deeply devastating to his reputation and to the reputation of God. The other thing I want to say is this. Most compromise starts small. Okay, you think through your life. Think of times where you've fudged on things. Most of us start compromising in small ways. I have three friends, business individuals, who have been embezzled in the hundreds of thousands of dollars by people who thought that they were not capable of doing such things to them. That's the way compromise works. It seems justifiable. It starts with small things and ends up with big, devastating things. So compromise always weakens and destroys our heart, and it always threatens to destroy the influence that God has called us to have. So this story takes place in the land of promise. Abraham is in the place that God has promised to give him. He knows the common practice of kings and dictators to acquire attractive women, to bring them into their harem as status symbols. Sarah is aging, but there's something about her bearing her appearance that is still eye-catching. Abraham knows it. So when they move into that context, Abraham says to his wife, tell them you're my sister. Now, it's a half-truth. Because Abraham and Sarah based on the account, had the same father, which sounds profoundly strange in our culture. But when you go back into the ancient culture, that was not a strange arrangement, not necessarily immoral, okay? Hard for us to grasp, but not necessarily immoral in the setting. That's the way things were back then, okay? So instead of saying she is my wife, he discloses 50% of the truth and hides the part that is, is relevant to the circumstance, and in that hiding of truth, Abraham compromises as a man of faith. So let's look as we go through the story. We'll just, I'm going to read through the text, and I'm just going to hit three points. Compromise, consequences, and grace. Let's read verses 1 through 10. Here's what the Bible says. And Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev. Now this moving on the part of Abraham is probably related to the fact that they have flocks and herds. And it's typical in in an arid culture like Israel in that climate to move around to find where the best feeding places are. Abraham is just doing what a farmer would customarily do to care for his flocks. It's interesting that it's in the region of the Negev between Kadesh and Shur while he stayed in Gerar. So he's in the area that God has promised him it one day will be his. It is not yet his. And there in Gerar, Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God 
came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't, he also, and didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Now he's not claiming total moral innocence in his entire life or sinlessness. But in regards to this situation that God is approaching about, Abimelech is like, ah, I am not guilty. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so, listen to this, I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. How ironic is that statement? The liar, the deceiver, the compromiser is a man of God. He will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials. And when he told them what had happened, they were very much afraid. You see, Abraham was totally wrong about these people totally wrong they were afraid Abimelech called Abraham in and said what have you done to us how have I wronged you that you have brought such a great guilt upon me and my kingdom you have you have done things to me that never should be done and, and Abimelech asked Abraham what was your reason for doing this let's look first at Abraham's compromise I'm just going to state this rather succinctly. Verse 11 is Abraham's reason for the compromise. So Abimelech says, Abraham, why you, what were you thinking? And Abraham is transparent and pathetic at the same time. I don't think he lies in his answer, but his answer is bold-faced pathetic. Abraham said, I said to myself, by the way, that's always the first problem. Okay? When you listen to yourself instead of God... You will be a person of compromise. I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. He knew the customs of the land. He was certain that if the truth was told, he would suffer a personal loss. And he, in his depravity, in his brokenness, he chooses himself and puts others at risk. So, steps into compromise. First, I'm overwhelmed by the fear of personal loss. I contemplate a circumstance. I think about the result. If I do the right thing, I think about the result. If I do the wrong thing, and I make my choice based on personal outcomes and desires. That is always a dangerous path. Secondly, when he, when he is overwhelmed by fear, he then fails to trust God and talks to himself. Okay? He doesn't go and say, God, how should I respond to this circumstance? I'm afraid of this tendency that's present in pagan cultures. Kings do bad things. What should I do? No. He says to himself, no prayer, no God. Whenever I fail to trust God and trust myself, God gets small. He is obscured by clouds of doubt and fear of loss. 
and no longer is the guiding influence of my life. And the truth is that whenever I fail to trust God, compromise is just around the corner. You can mark this down. The third step that he takes in the anatomy of a compromise is he forms his own plan, a path of his own choosing, of his own design, of his own making that will benefit him substantially. So in verse 2, his plan is, I'll lie. In verse 11, you find, or verse 13, you find out that he always told Sarah, you lie too. And Abimelech picks up on it, doesn't it? He said, she is my sister. She said, he is my brother. Neither told me that they were married. He forms his own plan. He lies and asks her to lie. The man of faith is scheming, not trusting. And folks, please understand this. Whenever I, as a child of God, find myself manipulating and scheming through circumstances to get what I want, I will compromise truth and destroy my testimony. In compromise, I don't honor God. I play God. And in this context, Abraham assumes the place of God, chooses a path in a difficult circumstance of his own design and his own making, and the result is absolutely devastating. Now, here's the simple truth about compromise. Compromise often seems noble. It is almost always rationally sound. And it always feels justifiable. We make the choice based on the outcomes that we want and desire. And that, in this context, is exactly what Abraham does. Fear ruled his heart. And the result was devastating. You know, in our personal lives, compromise is attractive, isn't it? We're always, we're always tempted to, to fudge on what we know to be true, to, 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 to modify the principles of God's word, to, to make adjustments, because we're afraid of what's going to happen if we do the right thing. We think if I sacrifice this conviction or make a slight adjustment, if I stay quiet about God's truth in a certain setting, I can retain a relationship, I can gain an audience and help so-and-so, right? That's the way it works in our mind. If I just fudge a little bit, if I don't say what I'm really thinking or answer in truth, I can retain the relationship and preserve the opportunity to make a difference in this person's life. It all sounds and feels so good. The problem is I keep caving. I cave in sexual areas. I cave in relationships with the opposite sex. I cave in relationship to integrity with my work. Think about this in the current situation. In regards to the hours that I report for working. Now, if you're given flexibility, take it. But if the expectation is that the hours you reported, you actually work, there will be a temptation on your part to compromise a little bit to get a little more. At the end of the day, compromise is always about myself. Now, in this account, I understand what's driving Abraham. Abraham has a fear of loss. My greatest temptation in seasons of struggle, in difficult circumstances, is to doubt the goodness of God. And whatever I succumb to doubting the goodness of God, compromise is the next likely step. If God was good, why would he let me in this situation? Therefore, since God is not protecting me in this situation, I need to come up with a plan of my own desire and my own making to protect my own interest. It's always about me, my 
and mine. And that is where Abraham stands. Now, I want to say this. If, if you, as you read this text, and you see a man who lied about his marital status to the king, put his wife at risk, and told her to lie about the same thing, there's part of you that is probably this morning feeling appalled. Like, you're thinking to yourself, how could he do that? How could he think that that was okay? And I want to challenge you if that's where your mind goes. Remember that this behavior, this type of thinking, this rationale is not outside the realm of possibility for any of us. We need to walk in deep humility and trust in the Spirit of God because all of us are capable of the things that Abraham succumbs to in this text. So that's the anatomy of the compromise. That's what happens. The second thing I'd like to look at is the consequences of Abraham's compromise. Now, here's the simple truth. My dad always says to me when we're in discussions about whoever or whatever. He says, Tim, remember my favorite word, choices, choices, choices. Your life as a child of God is shaped by who you trust and what you choose. And who you trust will always determine what you choose. Who did Abraham trust? Abraham trusted Abraham. And it defined his choices. When you trust God, God will define your choices. And because Abraham made horrible, horrific, stunning, appalling choices, the consequences are, number one, unavoidable. You see, there's a principle in the Bible called the principle of sowing and reaping. If you know anything about agriculture, you know that typically when you sow one seed, you you get back sometimes hundreds or thousands of seeds. Okay? So there is is an, an interesting aspect in the picture of sowing and reaping. Abraham has sown a seed, and the ear of corn is going to be full of the consequences. The consequences of compromise are unavoidable. Even though it brought him temporary relief. Folks, listen to me. As you read through this account, when you come to verse verse 2 or verse 11, Abraham said to himself, there is no fear of God in this place. They're going to take my wife. Guess what happens? They take his wife. And what's Abraham thinking? Well, at least we're both still alive. I guarantee you, Abraham, at some level, feels justified that a smugness comes. I was right. But the consequences are unavoidable. Secondly, the consequences are uncontainable. When you compromise, you always think through the consequences. And you always value the potential gain. But when you think through the consequences, in your mind, the consequences seem manageable. Somewhat containable. No one ever enters into embezzlement expecting to end up in jail giving up their freedom. They don't. They start with small steps, small levels of embezzlement, and suddenly they get in deeper. And the reward is higher and the risk is greater. Abraham, in this context, puts his wife and the promise of God at risk. You just have to go back two chapters to chapter 18. God has told Abraham, your wife Sarah will bear a son. That son will be the link, the the, the connection to the promise that God has made 25 years ago. 
Abraham is willing to put it all at risk. He's willing to put his wife at risk. How profoundly selfish and evil. And how right it feels to him. Instead of leading in his family, he drags her into the plot. I wonder how Abraham felt the night of verse 2. Because I don't know exactly how quickly this happened. But they get into town. They're living there. Verse 2 seems to indicate that Abraham has adopted a custom of referring to Sarah as his sister. And then at some point in the future, she has been observed, she has been valued, and she is taken. That night, that night, how does Abraham feel? You know, one thing I hate is the inability to sleep. And I've, over the last couple months, I'm working on a little project that's, that's got me a little bit uh, energized, okay? And, and I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that there are things that wake me up. That to me are positive. They're possibilities. They're in, whatever it is. It's an invention. It's a thought. It's a way to advance a cause that you're involved in. Those are things that wake me up. I don't mind those. But I despise the things that keep me awake. The things that keep me from getting the sleep that I desperately need. My suspicion is that because of the devious choices that Abraham has made, he has things keeping him awake. He can't sleep. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says the way of transgressors is hard. Abraham knows it. He's been here before. 25 years down the road in his walk with God, he's still struggling. Now, at one level, I'm shocked by that, but at another level, I'm like, I can relate. I can relate. And you know what it is to keep fighting like Abraham is fighting? Compromise is also costly. Abraham has savaged his reputation and disgraced his God. At the end of the day, Abraham has decimated every believer around him. I've had people say to me as a pastor, in relationship to individuals, if that person's a Christian, I never want to be one. Abraham is slipping into the category of the compromised of one whose reputation and testimony is being devastated because he wanted to protect himself above protecting the glory of God. Can we read through, uh, look at this part through 3 through 7? Abimelech says, as God comes to him in a dream, he says, yes, I know I did this with a clear conscience. God says to him, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and I have kept you from sinning. Abimelech is totally different in his response than what Abraham expects. Abimelech is broken. The people of Gerar are broken. They're completely different than what Abraham assumed. And they are, at some level, from what we see, repentant. Abraham says, or Abimelech says to Abraham, these names are tough, right? When I'm with my three daughters, I, I start calling my daughter Becca by my sister's name, Becky. I have no idea where that comes from, okay? Because my three daughters' names aren't anything alike in that way. But I end up, it's, it's just age, I'm sure. It's my faltering mind. 
Well, when Abraham, or when Abimelech talks to Abraham, the cost of this decision that he's made becomes so clear. He, he says to him in verse 9, Abimelech speaking to Abraham, he called Abraham and said, Abraham, what have you done to us? How, what did I do to deserve what you did to me? Meaning, how did I wrong you? The truth is, you hadn't, he hadn't wronged Abraham. Abraham just thought that he would. And I want you to listen to what Abimelech says. How have I wronged you that you brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? See, Abraham's choice didn't simply affect Abraham. It put a whole town at risk. And here's Abimelech's assessment of the believer's behavior. He says, you have done things to me that should never be done. Folks, here's the truth. You start down the road of compromise, you will do things that you said in the past I would never do. Or things that when you saw other people did them, did, uh, when you saw other people do things, in your mind you thought, I would never do that. Here's the truth. We are all capable of the unimaginable. Every one of us. And when you think that you're not, that pride will lead to devastation. That's why the Bible says God knows how to humble the proud and to bless the humble. So I just want to challenge you as you look at this, that that consequences come. They flow from compromise. Verse 11 through 13, Abraham gives his rationale. Pathetic but honest. And it is ironic in the account. Here's what Abraham says as he assesses glory. He says, I was sure that there was no fear of God in this place. They're godless people. They decide their ethical standards based upon what they want. They're godless. But it's interesting that the man of God in this context is the one who acts without any regard for God's ethical standards. Folks, that's what compromise will do. It will wreak havoc in your heart, in your moral thinking. It will distort and distract and destroy. Honest, but pathetic. Nothing from Abraham but self-justification. Folks, here's the truth. At the center of all sin is the letter I. At the center of all my selfish choices is me. And Abraham has forgotten about everyone else and is only making choices that enhance his future plan and purpose with total disregard for God. That's why Philippians 2, as we looked at a few weeks ago, says this, do nothing out of self-interest. Do nothing for I. Do everything for God and others. That's the great commandment. Lastly, I want to look at the topic of grace in this text. So we see the compromise. We see the consequences that flow out of it. Now we look at the intervention of God. And I, I love how texts resolve in such a beautiful fashion. Okay? I want you to look. Grace, at the end of the day, we need God's grace. And in this text, there are a few evidences of God's grace. Verse 3 gives the first evidence. It says, and the two words that start this verse, but God. So Abraham does his thing, Abimelech does his thing, and God intervenes with two words that are transformational. 
Always remember that God is near, about to intervene. But God, in the chaos, two words are game changers. Because at the end of the day, God is the one who's in control. So let's see the evidences of grace. I'll just give you four of them. Number one, God, God's plan is protected in spite of Sarah's complicity and Abraham's foolishness. Look at verse 6. So Abraham's, or Sarah's been taken. She's been brought into the palace of the king. But God comes to Abimelech and said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. And what do you listen, look at the next two statements? I kept you from sinning against her. I did not let you touch her. Now, how God did that, we're not sure. You're going to see in the text that God's going to ask Abraham to pray for Abimelech's healing. So it seems that some way Abimelech and his household have been physically affected by God to prevent the compromise of his promise through Abraham and Sarah. It's amazing, isn't it? What I want you to think about is this. This text says, I have kept you. I did not let you. So here's the question. Who keeps Abimelech from sinning? Who stops his desires? Who who thwarts his plans? God himself. Which means that I am not a totally free moral agent. God has the authority and the power to overrule my sinful desires. And you ought to thank God for that truth. That in this story, the sovereignty of God has limited or mitigated the consequences of compromise. But God. And so as you face difficult circumstances, if you are the victim of the compromise of someone else, you need to rest in the goodness of God. Don't make your own plan. Trust God's plan. God's providence. God's sovereignty. I have kept you. I did not let you. The result is that Abimelech is deeply humbled. When he realizes that God was at work in his life, it breaks him. And at some level, I don't know the level to which it happens, but at some level, there's there's a changing effect in his life. Second, in verse 7, just look at what this says. God speaking about Abraham. He says, verse 7, Now return the man's wife. That's pretty clear. For he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. If you're Abimelech, what are you thinking? I know what I'm thinking when I read that text. Like, he's a what? He speaks for who? He'll pray for me, and I'll be healed. Him? And I hope there's something in this about the grace of God that stuns you. I hope that every time God uses you to do something that you could not do on your own, I hope that you are stunned and amazed at the grace of God. Who kept Abimelech from sinning. And who was going to use a man like Abraham. That gives me hope. The fact that God could use Abraham to do his work is hopeful for me. He is my prophet. That's it. I think Abimelech's thinking... I'm glad you told me because I would have never guessed that by watching his behavior. 
the restoration of Abraham in this text, prior to it happening, the restoration that God is working out is not owing to his honorable choices or an honorable response. His response in verse 10 is pathetic. But God is promising to work through him. Folks, I just let that degree of grace shock you. Maybe for some of you, it's irritating you. Here's the truth. You don't understand God's grace until it irritates you. Until you say, wait, 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 wait. You're saying that so-and-so, if they confess their sin, they can be forgiven? Yes. The person that wounded me deeply, that abused me, that, that, that lied to me, that stole from me? Yes. Yes. God's grace is that strong, that overwhelming, and desperately needed by every person in this room and watching on TV today. Third, God improves Abraham's personal status, 14 to 16. Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you want. Abraham, whatever you want, go. Folks, do you understand something? This is the promise of Genesis 12. Being fulfilled through the wish of a pagan king. That's grace. Abraham, part of what God promised you, Abimelech doesn't know this. But he says, Abraham, look, take whatever you want. Well, whatever Abimelech points to is part of what God already promised to Abraham. And he uses a pagan king to bring blessing, to improve Abraham's personal status. Folks, it's important that we realize that God's favor does not flow to me in response to my performance. It flows because God is true to his promises. My experience of God's blessings in my life are not the result of good behavior, of good performance. Those blessings are always the result of God's astonishing love and amazing grace. That's why every time God's blessing comes into the life of a believer, it will never produce pride, bragging, self-promotion. It will always deeply break and humble. And then verses 17 to 18 is the last illustration of grace I see in this text. It says, after this whole thing happens and and Abimelech pours out blessing, he gives special, uh, if you want to use the word reparations to Sarah, right? He gives her a thousand shekels. He says, I am so sorry. Something going on in his heart. Verse 17, in response to verse 7, where God said, Abraham will pray for you, Abimelech. That rascal will pray for you, and I will move. So that when I move, no one will say, wow, that Abraham is an amazing guy. They'll say, Abraham serves an amazing God. And in spite of his compromise, verse 17 says this, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham, Sarah's wife. There's a whole lot of issues that come up in that text. I'm not going to address all of them today because we don't have time for it today. What I want you to see at the, at the heart of this text is a simple statement. Abraham prayed and God moved. Folks, listen. If you think on a bad day 
that you have limited access to God, you're wrong. Your access to God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's power is never dependent upon how you live. It is always owing to the grace of God. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't face dry seasons and difficult seasons because of bad choices. Abraham is clearly in the midst of one. But at the end of the day, in that season, Abraham prayed and God healed. I, I, when I read that, I was like, I've read this text before. I've preached this text before. But this time when I was just doing my study, I don't go back and never go back to my old notes. I just start with the text again. This is what jumped out to me. Abraham prayed. And God healed. Like, there's hope for me. So think of where I am right now. I preached. And God affected someone's heart. And I can't take credit for the work that God did. That's how we live in grace, folks. We're never ready. But God is always ready to use us. When we... When confronted, surrender to his plan and purposes. So God says to Abraham, Abraham, go pray for that man. Abraham's thinking, how could I? How could I? But he obeys God, and God moves. For me, that is very hopeful. Strategy never unleashes the power and grace of God. The love of God does. So what are the concluding thoughts? Let me just give you this. Abraham is the first prophet mentioned in the Bible. First time the word prophet is used. First to bear the title. But the leader is disappointing, isn't he? I don't know about you, but in my mind I'm thinking to myself, Hey God, you said Abraham, Romans, is the man of faith. He's the exemplar. I'm thinking, whoa. God is unbelievably gracious. My failures are not final with the God of amazing grace. They may feel final. They may feel devastating. They may feel ruinous. But by the grace of God, they are not. I just want you to let that truth settle in. You know, in the current political climate, August is my, this is me, okay? I'm not making a political statement. I'm making an observation. A political observation. Leaders are fundamentally disappointing. But they make me long for a leader who has unfailing integrity, who is faithful and true, who never compromises, who never disappoints, who does what it right, does what is right when it will cost him everything. And his name is Jesus. I hope you read through Abraham's life and you don't go away saying, I am amazed by Abraham. That's not my response to this text. My response to this text, I am amazed at his God who chose to use him. I mean, there's part of reading Abraham's life that makes me feel good. That's an evil response. That's a sinful response. 
But it's possible to read Abraham's life and think, all right, I'll admit I'm a sinner, but I've never done that. Here's the truth. I've never been in the circumstance to do that. Okay? Does that make sense? They said, well, I would never be dishonest financially. If I was the CEO of Jersey Central Power and Light, I would never do what the CEO of Jersey Central Power and Light did 25 years ago. A man making $750,000 a year 20 years ago embezzled from the company. That sounds insane. But that's what compromise does. Does that make sense? So here's a just couple simple thoughts. Be people of uncompromising, unflappable integrity. And when you are, it is proclaiming. Okay, when you live the truth, when you stand for what's right, when you don't compromise, you capture the attention of a watching world because they want to know what's driving you. Hopefully the answer will be the glory of God. Wonder this morning, what circumstance are you facing that is testing your integrity, testing your faith? What circumstance, if you do the right thing, is going to cost you personally? Like my friend. And how will you respond? Well, see, here's the principle that I've tried to share in our church over the years. Do what is right and leave the results with God. That's what Abraham should have done in this circumstance. But what did Abraham do? Abraham pulled out his calculator. And he started to figure out the cost of doing the right thing and the benefit of doing the wrong thing. And he chose himself. Dad, in the context of your home, lead with integrity and courage. Husband, in the context of your home, lead with integrity and courage. Wife, hear what Sarah should have done in this story. She should have said, Abraham, I will not lie for you and I will not lie to you. I am a woman of God. But he puts her at risk, and the results are devastating. Secondly, just as an application, so be people of uncompromising integrity. Second, trust God's truth above your rationale. Be able to say at times like Abraham should have said, I have a big problem here in light of what Abimelech may do. But God has plans. Do you see? In life, this will always be true for you. In a fallen world, you have problems. And you're going to be tempted to compromise to work through those problems. Here's what you need to remember. I got problems. God has plans. God will find a way through the difficulty, through the struggle that retains integrity and that honors God above all things. Face your fears in faith. And the verse that came to my mind this morning, familiar, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, Abraham. And all your ways look to him. And he'll make your path straight. See, my fear of loss leads to compromise. Trusting God leads to integrity. There's an old song that I remember singing as a young person. It's really a song about facing circumstances where doing what's right just doesn't seem like the logical thing to do. It doesn't seem like the best thing. Here's what it says. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes 
in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. Wouldn't you love to read, read this story, have Abraham struggle in his heart with what he's going to do, and then say, you know what, I'm going to do the right thing. What a story it would be. But I'm going to tell you something. In the wisdom of God, this is the story he recorded for us. This is the account. Why? Because this is my story. It's not Abraham's story in quotes. It's our story in quotes. It's our struggle with compromise, our dealing with consequences, our failure to trust. What battle are you moving into? What circumstance are you sensing? What fear is about to bend and compromise you? God is saying, trust me. Trust me. And the last thought, I just, this is just simple. Be amazed by God's grace as you read a text like this. Abraham prayed. Pathetic. Man, weak prayer. God healed. That's grace. If you're listening or you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. Here's what I want you to know. You have not done something that God can't forgive through the work of the ultimate man of God, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross without compromise to stand in your place, to bear the wrath of God that you deserve for your evil life. And if you are willing to own that in repentance and faith, he will transform your life, forgive you, make you clean, and put you on a different road in your life. He'll change you completely. Not because of your performance. The man of God, led by God in this text, has horrific performance. But a great and gracious God. May God help us to be people of integrity. Christian, may you remember that your failures are not final. They are not the last word in your life. Abraham testifies to that truth. I want you to go away this morning saying, God, give me a healthy fear of compromise. And lead me in the way everlasting. Take my hand and guide me. I desperately need your guidance and your help. If you're listening online and you have a desire to be uh, given extra information on what we've talked about today, uh, we want to encourage you to uh, just go to the chapel website, go to the email just submit a request. Say, hey, I want a Bible. I want to talk to someone. I want to know more about what Christ has done. We would love to, and we would be glad to assist you in any way that we can. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, oh, how often we face rivers that we think are uncrossable. We face mountains that we can't see a way to tunnel through. Help us to trust the one who specializes in things thought impossible, who does the things that others cannot do. So God, help us as we go today to be committed to integrity, trusting a mighty and gracious God to use us to make a difference in people's lives. We pray for these blessings in the glorious, beautiful, and perfect name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you and thank you uh, for coming.